Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host, Chris Morales, pulling double duty. Pretty soon it'll be triple duty. 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number. If you want to call in and speak to us. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org, that's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S dot O-R-G, and click on the OCG Radio Live button, or you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. You don't have to call in on the call-in line to listen to the show, unless that's your only means, then by all means, do so. How about you, Joe? See, that's oh. not fair. I'm, I'm supposed to <laughs> drop that whenever I feel it's appropriate. No, to drop you see, it. you know what? As much as it pains me as a diehard 49ers to drop that one for you, you got to give credit where credit is due. And so I had to give you one of those to start off the new year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all. All right, this is our first show of 2015. Um, so. That was a great uh, wild card weekend. Yeah, I really don't care too much about it. I am, however, wearing a nice brand new pair of 49er socks my lovely wife bought for me, and we're still without a coach, so I'm not uh, I'm not too happy about uh, anything that's happening. Wait, wait, wait a minute! <laughs> it just rem- didn't. Wait a second! I just remembered. Didn't we have some bets? <laughs> I can't confirm or deny any kind of. Um, betting or gambling that I may or may not be partaking in in the state of California. But uh, you may have a couple of lunches uh, owed to you. We'll, we'll say that. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Let's go to our uh, happy recap. Um, what you got for us? Anything? I kind of just want to throw out to the folks that uh, although it is, what is it, the 6th today, January 6th, yep. that it's not too late to uh, re-gear yourself for the new year. I'm sure there are some of you out there who maybe over the New Year's weekend have already fallen off 
from the list of reservations that you had set for yourself. Fell off the wagon. <laughs> Fell off the wagon already. Uh, but just want to let folks know, hey, you know what? It's the 6th. That is, the, uh, I guess, the first official week, if you want to put it that way, of the new year. Not too late to get back on and accomplish what you want to accomplish, uh, just in case the New Year's weekend celebrations got a little out of hand. You know the saying, when when someone falls off the ladder, or I mean, falls off the wagon, Let's hear it. there's many different ways they can get back on the wagon. Okay. Some better than others. <laughs> okay. And it's similar to, um, and you should, you being a native San Francisco one should know, you know, hopping onto the trolley car. So either it's a smooth hop right back onto the wagon. Right, or you're holding or, on by. Or, or you're being dragged and you're holding on for dear life, or you, you you jump and miss the step and, you know, trip and fall. That's right. But uh, either way, we're there to catch you. That's right. And pull you up, pull you back onto the wagon. Battered or not, we can get you on this wagon. And it's not San Francisco in, it's San Franciscan, period. All right, New Yorker? Okay, well. San Francisco in. <laughs> um, the thing I want to recap is our, our from our last show, one of our callers, I think it was the last caller we had, was talking about, you know, he was getting ready to have some uh, medical things, surgery or whatever done. Right. And he was concerned about, you know, the medication he was going to be prescribed and, and you know, Pretty much putting them together with, uh, you know, what's the difference whether she prescribes me pain meds or just gives me heroin. I don't see any difference. And pretty much what he was doing, and we spoke to him about that, was he had already written a script because he'd been down this road before and it didn't have a good turn, you know, result. And so here he is, finds himself going back into the hospital to have a medical procedure done. He knows he's going to you know, be prescribed medication, and what's going to happen this time. And I just want to let people know that if you write your script out in advance that you're going to do the same thing that you've done before, then you're going to do the same thing that you've done before. You have to think differently. And if you think differently, then you have a chance at acting differently. And so that's what we tried to get across to him. And I'm not sure we asked him to call back today, but he actually might still be in the hospital um, in recovery. Um, oh, look at that, in recovery. That's right. Um, so but hopefully we can uh, have him call back and let us know how, how he's doing. And maybe we can help walk him through this process so that there isn't this dark tunnel of uh, hopelessness. Know, hopelessness. <laughs> I completely agree. Sometimes the um, so the old self-fulfilling prophecy can be yep. quite powerful. Yep. And so, yeah, let's uh, hope, wish him a speedy recovery, and then on to the next process of that step in his recovery. And hopefully you can call back, like you said, and we can uh, check in with him, see how he's doing. Yep. Help him through the next phase, if you will. Right. So it's not going to be like it was before. I agree. That's all I got. I think that's all I got as well. I think today we might want to dive straight into the show topic, especially because I think we're on about a month running where we've had to cut the topic short uh, due to all the wonderful information is that we have to share with everybody. Uh, there's just not enough time in the day to do it, especially not in our little two-hour show. So I think we ought to get right into the topic. Well, today's topic, uh, 
recovery and relationships, and I ask, why the controversy? (laughs) What's the big deal? Well, it's obviously a big deal because not only does it come up in our phone calls often, but um, just in our daily experience in the treatment environment and post-treatment environment, uh, relationships are a big deal, big issue uh, for more reasons than one, probably more reasons than we'll be able to fit into and touch on. I'm sure we're going to miss some stuff, so stay tuned for the recap next week because I'm I'm, I'm (laughs) certain we're going to not cover every single possible thing. Sure. Um, But let me start off by saying this. So there's being in the treatment and recovery field, there's relationships that occur while people are in treatment, in the midst of treatment. There's relationships that occur post-treatment. And then there's the relationships while they're in the the golden age of their recovery, I'll call it. Let's just use that terminology. Okay. Now, you know, in the residential setting, of course, we're probably one of the last programs. We know locally we're the last program, but and there's not that many left in California. I can't speak for the rest of the country, but co-ed programs are going out of style. They're just not happening. They're just going with same-sex programs for different reasons. Right. Um, our position has always been that there, the the benefits outweigh the potential risks of having you know of having a co-ed program. That males and females can learn from each other. You know, a male can learn certain things from a female that he can't learn from another male. And if mature, responsible adults utilize it that way, which is what occurred to a certain extent when I was in treatment, um, it could be a wonderful thing. There's the flip side, of course, when there's other agendas and people get into, you know, things, game playing and stuff that they shouldn't while they're in treatment and the focus goes off of treatment and on to whoever they have eyes for. So that's relationships in treatment. Right. So let's just start with that. Starting with relationships and treatment, yeah. That's, um, I guess I, I totally agree with you in the sense that the benefits or the rewards outweigh the risks when it comes to having a co-ed program. Um, it's important that, to me anyway, that treatment be as close to reality as possible. And so the reality is there are several men with issues pertaining to female figures in their life or females in general, relationship struggles and vice versa. And if you go into an environment with all men and you never learn how to tackle those issues that you may have with women or as a woman, if you go into a relation, uh, I'm sorry, into treatment with all females and never learn how to tackle the issues that you may have with the opposite sex, when you're released back into the real world or when you go back out into the real world, it can be a setup, uh, in my opinion, because you are now going to face the reality of having to interact with both men and women, uh, relationships are an inevitable, an inevitable part of life. And if you haven't learned how to appropriately navigate that um, in the training ground, which treatment should be and, and is for many people, uh, the odds of you falling flat on your face when you're confronted with a difficult situation is going to be a lot higher than it would be if you went to treatment with members of the opposite sex and learned in groups and in other forums 
how to appropriately interact with members of the opposite sex, have healthy relationships, form healthy relationships, learn about the opposite sex and, and their struggles and be able to look at it through their point of view and everything that comes with entering treatment where you're dealing with those things is going to be incredibly beneficial for you when you leave. And I guess the issue comes in, like you said, when they start to act off of the eyes they may have for one another. And then at that point, you completely lose sight of why you're there in the first place. You lose focus about what you're supposed to be doing. And then that leads to you not taking care of business, not getting what you need, which is also a recipe for disaster when you leave. So as long as that can be circumvented in some form or fashion, and in the TC, there's a pretty good. It's a pretty good model to prevent things like that with community pressure and other tools. Uh, the benefits are uh, endless, in my opinion. I would just interject and add, not just in the TC, but just in treatment settings in general. Um, there's usually pressure to. I, I don't know of any treatment modality or milieu that um, doesn't uh, say that if it's co-ed, you know, don't involve yourself in relationships with other clients. The other thing I want to add real quick is, as you were talking, I was thinking about when, when, we, would, when we had our adolescent program and we, we were receiving a lot of external pressure to separate the genders. Right. And m- most other adolescent programs in the state had already done that. We would be like the last survivors of having a co-ed program, and we could account and make the argument for why that was beneficial. But the reality is, is that we were dealing with age 13 to 17. Not, right. Enough said. Okay? Right. But when they just couldn't, I believe the exterior folks, the ones putting the pressure, couldn't understand how important it was that they had to learn to interact responsibly with the opposite sex. And we then asked, well, okay, if we just have a single-gender program, what happens if they're same-sex relationships? Right. That one they could not answer. Of course not. Couldn't answer that one. Of so, course not. And that happens. Of course and it happens. It, yeah. They can't even stop it in, in – and in, in, I'm just speaking about the adolescents. They couldn't even stop it in juvenile halls. That's why we used to just – it used to frustrate us to no end when they would say that. But anyway, um, in the treatment setting, and I want to say this, and then we're going to move a little bit to, to, to outside. But I want to say this in terms of in the treatment setting. One of the things we used to stress was the two philosophies, that unwritten philosophies that sit on top, honesty and trust. So I used to tell people, look, when you walk in the front doors, okay, male or, I would say this to male or female, you walk in the front doors and you're present, you know, at some point you're presented to the whole family. You're going to look around and you're going to see no one that you're attracted to. Okay? But I guarantee you, after four or five months in a residential setting, <laughs> you know, a guy or a gal who you wouldn't have the slightest interest in on the outside is going to look like a runway model all of a sudden. Just like that. Just like that. Okay. So, and everyone would come in and would say, oh, no, I'm involved in a relationship on the outside. I'm this, I'm that. I'm not interested in that. Same thing would happen. 
And I'd say, okay, and we'd watch and wait, and then all of a sudden, the people who you you would never think they would have eyes for each other or be playing footsie under the table, and be like, what? Who? Them two? Are you serious? But it happens. Absolutely. Okay. When you know when you're just in that environment for so long, it happens. So, like you said, we take the position of trying to tell them that, you know, the moment you do that, you're now taking the focus off yourself and put it on the other person. And so you're no longer the most important person in treatment. Somebody else is. Right. Okay. But we also try and say this is an opportunity to learn some self-discipline and self-control. Because ultimately, one day we're going to do a show on self-discipline and self-control because ultimately – those two things are going to be the things that are going to save you. And so you can practice with that. The, one of the most hardest things, which is acting off of a natural urge. And I think this is one of the areas where staff in programs have issues. Okay? It is natural for people to be attracted to each other. That's right. There's nothing in the world that you know that anyone can... Stop that from happening or prevent that from happening. Oh, and, and let me interject right there. As I hear you use the word prevent, fits right into that kind of uh, preventative approach, right? Sure. When you try to start thinking about, oh, no, let's just eliminate one sex and deal with one sex to prevent what may happen or what may occur, which, you know, you could try to prevent things until the end of the world and things are still going to happen and you're not accomplishing much other than giving yourself a headache. Same thing in this sense, right? We're not going to prevent this. We have parameters, guidelines, things that are set up. The community can deal with things if things are going to come. But like you said, it, that it's a natural kind of deal and that just needs to be dealt with in the way that's set forward through the program instead of trying to prevent it because you're not helping anybody by preventing anything. The other thing I want to comment on, and this is probably where I, I would add one disagreement. With me? Yeah. Oh, maybe, come on, man. Maybe a 30, it's the first show of the new year. A 30%, just maybe a 30% disagreement when you talk. 30%? I, yeah, let me explain. Let me explain. The, the only, I think when it comes to um, all female programs, I think there are certain times when that is a benefit because women... Delving into the mental health side of things. No, not necessarily mental health. Well, I mean, you can include the mental health, but just let's talk big picture. Even for, um, You can talk from your experience. I can speak from mine. Women come into treatment with sig- significant trauma. Right. I'm not going to say more trauma because today I can't say that. Yesteryear, I could say, yes, absolutely, women came to treatment with more trauma than men. Right. And probably we could say that from yesteryear because we weren't really looking at trauma in men Correct. in yesteryear. Correct. Um, but we know that women come into treatment with significant trauma, significant negative history. And so we, if you recall, we even started a program back in 1998 for, for girls. Voice. The Voice program. Victims Overcoming Issues Choose Expression for young girls who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder having to do with sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, etc. Right. Okay. And the reason we did that is because we felt that they, by themselves, without the distraction of the, uh, the adolescent male, the adolescent male lion, okay, getting in the <laughs> way, 
that the girls can heal, bond, and then present themselves to the larger group, i.e. the larger society, okay, with more self-esteem, more self-confidence, and with those issues under control, okay? So that's probably the only area I would I would say that I think single-sex programs for women who have significant trauma and issues can benefit them um, because they need to... They need to deal with that before they present themselves. And let me add, let me dare I say this on the public airways. You know and I know, we've seen it, we've dealt with it, that there are men, okay, who come into treatment and can spot a woman who doesn't feel good about herself like a lion a second. spotting a piece of raw meat. Right. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Okay. And think nothing of trying to worm and weasel their way in. And so, yes, I would say single-sex programs for women I have no problem with because of the things we just talked about. But yeah. eventually needing to reacclimate, you know, to the yes. idea that they are going to coexist with men. And hopefully have a healthy relationship at some point. They're going to encounter men in society, just like the men are going to encounter the women in society. So at some point, um, they they have to learn how to responsibly interact with each other. And so the the woman who has been abused, let's say, can't transfer what she feels about the abuser onto every single man that she comes into contact with. Right. Likewise, the man who either has abused or himself has been abused can't transfer those things onto others. Okay? So the whole goal of treatment is you dealing with you so that you don't transfer it onto other people. Okay? Now, we know the worst thing that can happen, there is a 99.9.9% failure rate when people who are in treatment together in, in any setting, I don't care if it's residential, outpatient, day treatment, I don't care whatever it is, people who are in treatment together that get involved romantically, that relationship is doomed to fail. Right. And we have been preaching that for 40 years. Yeah, for a long, long time. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem to deter folks, though, once folks have made up their mind. No, well, I mean, they come into treatment and they think that they they. I always ask. They're the did, exception. Well, I said, did you come into here to find a husband? Did you come in here to find a, a wife? No, no. I said, so what are you doing then? Right. And then when I tell them, well, you, this is going to fail, and they say, well, why is it going to fail? I said, because you're circumventing the natural process. Well, what are you talking about? Well, the natural process is, see, when you're in the treatment environment, especially if it's a co-ed environment, you find out things about the other person that you ordinarily wouldn't find out. Because we stress honesty, trust in your environment, sharing, talking about your problems openly with your peers, family members, etc. when you're in the treatment setting. So when you're sitting there listening to someone share about the, you know, things that they've been through, okay, 
Well, if you were on the street, you wouldn't ordinarily be privy to that information. You would have to gain the person's trust in order for them to share with you on that level. That takes two, three, four, five years or more maybe for that to happen. Absolutely. But here you are 60 days in a program and you're sitting in a group and you're – and by the way, I don't care if it's male or female. If it's an all-male group and, and, and a guy sitting there sharing about his experience. If I met you on the basketball court and we became friends, you wouldn't just automatically be sharing your innermost secrets right. to me. That's something that develops over a long period of time where trust develops. So when you circumvent that, and now you have all of this information that normally would have been obtained through the normal courting process, the normal dating process, where you establish yourself, where you prove yourself, where you demonstrate your worthiness, you know what I mean? To 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 have that information, it's circumvented. So when you get out there and you guys split a wall, and all of a sudden you're now together, what are you talking about? What are you sharing about? You already got everything that you need to know. That that would actually bring you together. You know the intimate information, but you acquired it through a you know unnatural means. Absolutely right. So it's going to fail. So that's why we tell people no relationships while you're in the treatment setting. And I don't care what modality it's in. Sometimes people think, oh, well, if I'm an outpatient and there's someone else who shows up to the outpatient group, then we're not living together in the same facility. You know, they, she has her place, I have mine, and we just come to group once a week. I guess it's okay. No, it's not okay. Yeah, same concept applies. It's not okay for the same reasons. You're going to be getting information in that group that you wouldn't normally get just dating somebody. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we, we want to push people out into the world. You know, go and challenge your, your fears and challenge yourself with someone who who has who is different from you, doesn't have that singular thing in common of being, you know, being an addict or being in recovery. And see what you're made of. Fascinating. So, <laughs> so that's don't you know? I'm getting getting going here now. Yeah, no, that's it, <laughs> and and that's good stuff. That's good stuff, and I completely, completely agree. It's and I've never even really looked at it from that angle, but it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. The information that you're going to get from an individual and group. Um, you know, is going to be information that you may not know about somebody who you've been dating for a year, two years, like you said, until that that trustworthiness is built. The you know, and in order for the person whom you're dating or romantically involved with to feel confident and comfortable enough to share something like that with you in a natural setting, in its natural course, where something like that will come out because. If you think about even somebody who's involved in what you might consider to be a healthy relationship, um, those questions aren't typically asked anyway. So there has to be some sort of natural setting for whatever reason that evening over dinner or over a movie or whatever, the conversation comes up. Maybe something in the movie sparks it and it's kind of a natural outlet or avenue for which somebody to share something with somebody that they're beginning to trust, but that in this group setting or this modality, it's forced, it's put on you, you know? Let's let's have at it. Put it on the table. And gaining information like that, um, 
doesn't it's not normal i guess it doesn't lead to what you might think a healthy relationship would be formed as so i completely agree with you and i've never really looked at it from that angle but that is pretty interesting to know that yeah man you go through treatment with somebody for six months you might know more about them than you would have known had you been friends for 10 years you know right. and so that, that that really is an interesting angle to look at it from so the next thing that um clients who so they're 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 out of the let's say the residential setting and they're 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 not looking to get involved with anyone that's you know connected to you know and any tr- type of treatment setting they're involved with so right. they're out in the world and so the next question that always comes up and we've had to come up on the show from our callers is when is the appropriate time where I can start to to date so you know the mantra has been or the dogma has been um you know, you shouldn't get involved romantically with anyone if you're in recovery for at least two years, you know, until after two years, okay? I, I actually don't know where that came from. I just heard that somewhere along the way. Um, and I've never subscribed to, to that for a simple reason, is that you can't, in my opinion, put any standardized time frame on a human being because everyone is different, everyone's situation is different. And you've heard me say in response to people who ask that question is you you don't know when the person that is for you is going to be presented to you. Right. You don't know when it's going to occur. It could be three days after you've left residential treatment and you're now an outpatient. You don't know. It's really how do you respond to that, you know? And so when someone when, – when we get asked the question – did you hear that? I said ask because, you know, I've been, people have been making fun of me, my New York accent, saying axe. Yeah, ask. Yeah, so I'm trying. I'm, I'm working on the vernacular. Okay. So when you get asked the question of, well, you know, how soon after treatment can I date? My answer is that that's not the the right question, how soon after treatment. The question is, are you ready? to involve yourself with another person romantically. Right. Because for me, I'm not saying this is empirically studied. I'm not saying this is in the the the, the American Journal of, of, of Medicine, etc. For me, through my experience, when people have relapsed and come back into treatment or come back for assistance, okay, relationships by far are at the top of the list of the root cause of their relapse, their inability to deal with relationships, getting themselves into bad relationships, going back into relationships with people who are still using, going back into relationships with people who abuse them, going back into relationships with people who are still involved in a negative lifestyle. So I asked them, well, we spent all this time talking about decision-making, self-esteem, self-confidence, making decisions that are in your best interest. And you leave, and you go right back to the person that kind of was your running buddy, even though you were romantically linked, was your running buddy out there, and what did you think the result of that was going to be? Well, I can change them. I can help them. I can, you know, no, you can't actually. And so I always say, 
that when you really dig, 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 dig and get underneath why these decisions are made, the answer usually it comes back to how the person feels about themselves. Because anyone who would choose to go back into a relationship that contributed to their downfall, thinking that there's going to be a different result, that tells you, hey, I'm not confident. My self-esteem is not where it needs to be. This is all I can do. I can't do any better than this. And you can do way better than that. You can do way better than going back down the same road that contributed to how you ended up as an addict in the first place. There's one exemption I give, or two exemptions. Those are people who are married and people who are in long-term relationships prior to coming into treatment. Okay. Why the exemption for people long-term relationships coming into treatment? California, you know it's common law state. (laughs) Seven years? Seven or ten? I'm not sure. I think it's seven. seven. I think it's seven seven to ten. Seven to ten years. Seven to ten in California. Um, but if they're and and the other partner is positive, that's the key. That is, and the I key. don't care if yeah. So I don't even care if you're married. If your spouse is still is an addict, also you know, God forbid, and you're you know you're married, obviously, you know, well that's that's a problem. Especially if you are. You know, your your plan is to go back into that situation. Well, that's a problem. However, you know, if that's your reality, meaning, you know, if, if you know, you're going back into the home and the, and the, and the husband's there and, and he's still in the life, but, you know, that's your home and there's no place else to go, then our job is to prepare you to survive that environment. It's like right. we're sending you into war. We have to prepare you to survive that environment. Would, do we want you? Would, would, it, would, it, would it be our wish that you go into that environment? No. But if the reality is that's where you have to go, then we have to prepare you to deal with the environment that you're going to be going into. Same applies if it's a long-term relationship. But, of course, our hope is that that's not the case and that the people are going back into positive and constructive environments, which will help facilitate a successful recovery. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the one thing I think about, not necessarily for people who are married, although it's probably still applicable, but when I think about the long-term relationship aspect, a part of me feels like if someone was involved with you romantically over a long period of time in your addiction, there's probably something not so healthy inherently about that relationship as opposed to maybe a short-term relationship, maybe a year or so where you've really connected with an individual, but this individual is somebody who's healthy and not going to share their life with someone who is in an active addiction and, you know, kind of relatively quickly into the relationship says, you know, you need to get some help, things need to change or I'm done Uh, that that might be somebody who's operating on their own end from a healthier perspective than somebody who's been with you for several years and, you know, is still kind of dealing with it. I agree. I agree with that. I mean, because there might, I mean, if it's long term and there might be some codependency issues there. Right, right, right. That's what I mean. We might have to bring them in and work them over um, and get to the bottom of that. A couple of left hooks, right hooks, 
and you know, depending on how you know how difficult they may be, we might have to come with the uppercut. The yeah. uppercut. Well, the, the uppercut is a good Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! <laughs> the, the uppercut is one of the too much resistance to, to recognizing that there is codependence there. That, you know, you 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 know, you didn't stand firm and, and make demands and, and maintain your boundaries. Right. And you you know, you kind of contributed to allowing this be, to go on. And uh, so you got to acknowledge what your role is. And if you're resistant to that, then, you know, we start with the left hook, then right hook. And if, if you're getting too much resistance, we're going to come with the uppercut. Okay. All right. Um, and uh, hopefully the uppercut gets you to understand that, <laughs> you know, you, you you played some role in, it in the long-term sense. But I sure. got you on what you're saying on the short-term sense, and that, and that does that does happen. But right. when is the right time? Can we name a right time? I don't think we can name a right time. It depends on the individual when, when the right time is to get into a relationship. But this thing about, I don't know, just, I don't know how to describe it. It just bothers me a little bit when, when there's just standardized, you got to wait two years. Well, what happens if the love of your life crosses you in, in the old, my old favorite vegetable aisle? Sorry. <laughs> If you're following the rule as a mathematical mm. equation, uh, you're going to let that one pass you by mm. with her uh, organic spinach and carrots and whatever else she's buying for dinner that evening. Or he. Or he, for that matter. Correct. Yeah. So I, um, I don't, I, I've never counseled in, in that manner. Um, I've, I've really dealt with wh- where the individual is at at that moment in time and if they're at a place where they have not finished, in my opinion, fully exploring themselves and uh, getting to a point where they fully understand who they are, on um, what they are, how how they respond, you know, are being able to articulate their feelings, understand their feelings, etc. Then, the, depending on where they are in that in that timeline, is is the advice or the the counsel I may give them in terms of, you know, how they should go about pursuing a relationship. And it may range anywhere from tippy-toeing to, you know, you know, you're in a good space, you know? So if, you know, go for it. Right. To, you know what, you're, you're not in a good space. And so if this is the love of your life, you may want to just, uh, Pump the brakes a little bit, right? You know, downshift a little bit and uh, take it slow until you know you get to to where you need to be. Because we certainly don't need to, uh, you know, either too. What's the word? Uh, is is a word I don't want to use. Cause I don't want to offend people, but. Should I just say it, whatever it is? I, hey. Look, we don't want two idiots getting together. <laughs> yes. Okay, or one, or one idiot and someone who's got their act together. You know, we want two people who are, you know, who got their act together Sensible. Coming, to, coming together. Right. We want right. this thing to work. We want, we want happy unions. Okay. Absolutely. Or successful unions. We don't, we don't want uh, what, what, we, what we often see. You know, we often see the, the results of the bad decisions. I agree. You know, way way too much. I agree. Way too much, and so, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a big issue for us. Gets us kind of wired up, doesn't it? 
It does. It does. And you're so right. At the beginning of the topic, you mentioned how it's so frequently asked about and talked about. It's it's a really major part of, I guess, you know, recovery and treatment and folks who come into treatment. It's something that's on everybody's mind. And everybody wants to know, I guess, kind of like you said, if there's some sort of concrete, definitive answer as to when, why, or how, or who, or whatever, and there's not. Like you said, it's simply based on the individual and where they're at, but it does get us wired up because it is such a common topic of conversation with everybody who comes in. Because it involves the humanness of the person. Right. It's not, you know, just, uh, we're not talking about widgets. We're talking about a human being, human emotion, natural, biological aspects of a human being, and asking people to be aware of who they are, what they are at, at, at this moment in time, and then make decisions accordingly. And that's very hard. It's very difficult. And we we hope that we can give good counsel along the way or lay out some um, some roadmaps that they can see and and then decide as they're moving along and then they could see those road maps or see those road signs and say, oh, okay, I remember I remember us talking about this. This is what's coming. This is I, I see that. So let me do this. Um, but it's hit and miss. Absolutely, relationships are a big deal. And like I said, it's my it's for me it's my number my number one thing of why people. Um, and by the way. We, we've been spending a lot of time talking about romantic relationships. When I say relationships, I include not only romantic relationships, but your inter, I-N-T-E-R, and your intra, I-N-T-R-A, personal relationships. So it's not only your intimate romantic relationships, but the relationships you have with your family members, the relationship you have with your close friends. Right. I include all of those. People just don't relapse over you know, inability to deal with romantic relationships. You know, people have issues with their parents, issues with their spouses, issues with their, their children, especially, you know, if you know, you're adults in treatment and you have children that you have, um, uh, you know, not taken care of or, uh, you know, while you were in your addiction, et cetera. There's issues. There, there's things to be talked about, things to be worked, worked out. And those things have to happen. They can't be avoided. You can't you can't run from them. And so. It's not just the romantic relationship, you know. It's the relationship that you have with the loved one, the sibling, the father, the the brother, the uncle, the aunt, whomever. That that's important. And you know, being human beings, when those things aren't dealt with, can't run from it. It's going to impact you. And what's one of my favorite sayings, Mister Producer? We want to get you to the point where whatever has gone on in your life. That's negative. Whatever has gone on in your life, that's negative. You get to a point where that no longer impacts what you do today. Right. What decisions you make today. How you feel today. Right. right. That's what I want to see for someone progressing through recovery. That's my wish for them. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure we're still going to get, obviously. Oh, the questions and the calls will never stop, my friend. They will never stop. We're going <laughs> to get that until the end. But I, I do want to make it clear 
the you know we have experience with a number of different milieus. We do the TC, the social model recovery. There's AANA, it's a twelve step. You know, there's hospital based recovery programs. It makes no difference what type of milieu the treatment is taking place in. It makes no difference the modality, whether it's residential, outpatient, day treatment, etc. If someone wants to engage in 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 a relationship with someone while they're in the midst of that, it's going to fail. <laughs> That's it. No two ways about it. We want to uh, steer people away from that. Now, so what do we do? How do we, you know, how do we deal with this dogma that's out there? Oh, the only way to deal with it is to continue to fight for and push what we believe is right. The do- you know, that's the only way dogmas, in my opinion, are ever reversed or crushed or done away with, is through a particular group or individuals within uh, a setting to be brave enough, I guess, to stand up against what that current belief is and to fight for what you believe is correct. And I just want to be clear. I'm not knocking the dogma as some, you know, dark negative thing. What I'm saying is is that I think that's just the belief right yeah, now. No, well, I, um, I think sometimes it's lazy to say as an answer to someone who's in recovery and they ask that question of, hey, you know, when do you think is the right time for me to start dating? It's lazy to say two years. You know, wait two years until, you know, after, you know, you start your recovery. I agree with that. To me, that's a lazy answer because you're not taking the person in front of you into consideration. Right, exactly. So the next person in line asks you two years, next person in line two years, Come on, that's cookie cutter. It's yeah, it's like putting a stamp on a piece of paper without reading the application. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I think it is kind of the easy way out. It's simple. And like you said, it removes the individual from the equation, which is boy, if that's how you're approaching treatment, then you're in the wrong line of business because we are not in the business of removing the individual from the equation. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The individual is the only equation that we're to be dealing with. The second you start pushing your own agenda or taking the easy way out, go find another line of work. Strong statements from the producer. Hey, you know, sometimes I got to go there. It's the new year. I'm ready, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I want to close on uh, reiterating to our people in recovery that are still in treatment programs that seem to have their minds drift. When when I was at Swan Lake in treatment, and remember that this was 250 people in a treatment setting. I thought you were going to say 250 years ago. Very funny. <laughs> 250 people in a treatment setting, a residential environment, 190 males, 60 females. Wow. Okay. And one chief? One chief? One chief of the house. <laughs> and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but women, the women made the best chiefs. Why did women make the best chiefs? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready for okay. it. They, The women made the best chiefs because 
wrongly, hear this, hear this, folks. I'm saying wrongly, they chose the women who had the most, I'll use a nice word, stuff for men to be <laughs> chief, <laughs> to be chief, right? Because they had no problem whipping the house. <laughs> Telling you exactly what time it was. They had no problem whipping the house. They made the best chiefs. Well, I'd just like to give a quick shout-out to Horace, if you're listening to your peer here and you, my friend, were ever the chief of the house. Horace. Go ahead and call in and rip a, rip the host here apart. Huh? No, he was I don't think Horace was ever the chief. I know he was, a no? he was a coordinator. Okay. But here's another thing that used to occur way back when. We don't do this anymore, but it, had, it served a purpose. So try and be open-minded. Okay, and we don't do this anymore. I don't know of any program in the country that does this anymore. But but just I want to tell you what used to happen. Mm-hmm. If a male in treatment disrespected a female in treatment, keep in mind the women that were in treatment. There were 190 men and only 60 women. Okay, mm-hmm. so there were three times the, the men. Three to one. Okay, women did not. They just did not make it into treatment for reasons I won't go into right now. Those that did make it in were scarred. Right. Had a lot of stuff that they had to, to, to a lot of work to do to get their self-confidence and self-esteem back where it needed to be. And so when any of the male residents disrespected them or did things or said things on the floor, I'm not talking about in group settings or anything like that, um, to to you know bring that back you know their experience on that they had out there back they used to do as a behavioral intervention was take that male sit him in a room with about 15 women chair in the center 15 women in chairs surrounding him <laughs> close the door there was no physical violence no uh-huh. no physical violence and they would just let all 15 women go off on him Physical violence might be better, the better option, uh, given the two at that point. So he would get smoked by the 15 women, come out of there, you know, just <laughs> shaking, sh- shoulders slumped, you know, hands almost touching the ground, you know, just oh, you know, almost man. crawling out of the room. Yes. Okay. Uh, and that's just the way it was back in the day. Okay. And, and it was what we were saying is we weren't going to tolerate that, number one. And number two, it was almost like we were doing an, account, an on-the-spot encounter group. But right. No opportunity to respond. You just listen. You just hear. You just take it. And as that began to permeate throughout the treatment environment, it became less and less because none of the guys wanted to experience that. Right. Okay. And, of course, you know, you had some guys who just – didn't learn, and that's just the way they were, but women got their opportunities to, to just get that energy out. You know, they had stuff from men, well, let it out. Right. You know, and I would tell them, you let it out here, because I don't want you taking it with you. Can't let come it, out on the floor. Let it out here. No, I, well, I didn't mean on the floor. I mean, let it, before you walk oh, out these uh, doors. Out of treatment, yeah. Before you leave these doors, that stuff has to be gone and dropped. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, or if it's not going and dropped, you have a full understanding of what you need to do to make it go. Sure. And to have it drop. One of the two has to happen. Sure. So, um, recovery and relationships. 
It's a great topic. I don't think it uh it definitely doesn't end here. It may end here for us today on this show, but this is gonna be ongoing for the foreseeable future. All right, let's take a break. Yeah? Um, I might have a couple more things to say on the subject, but let's take a quick music break. All right. And then uh, come back and uh, we'll pick it up. Beautiful. All right, perfect. We will take a quick break. For those of you in the queue waiting to speak to the host, please continue to hold. We thank you for your patience, and we will get to you on the other side.
Okay, welcome back to Roachone Recovery. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in. Uh, so we're closing out our discussion on recovery and relationships. Why the controversy? Well, I think we covered why there's a controversy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I guess the last thing I'll say is uh, for people who are working in the field advising people, let's uh, dig a little deeper with the advice. Um, and, and let's not cookie-cutter it and just give the, the old standard uh, two-year answer. That would be my final comment. Let's, let's, let's individualize and look at the person and where they're at before and, and advise them accordingly. I completely agree. So I would just second on that, that, again, and it transcends just the issue of relationships, but treatment in general, um, being individualized, working with the individual and understanding in the profession that there is no one right answer across the board for any group of individuals. Rather, each individual has their own path, and we need to be able to work with that. Um, We are up against the top of the hour, uh, but that's how we can end this topic. If you're okay with that, we'll uh, we'll drop one more song, and then we'll move right into the recovery support. I'm sure we'll uh, think of something, and we'll just do a recap recap next week. Okay, perfect. So, again, those of you who are on hold, we are going to get into recovery support time next, and we will begin taking phone calls. Thank you so much for your patience.
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Okay, welcome back to Road Chum Recovery. We're now in our recovery support time segment, so let's get right to the phones. We have Travion from East Palo Alto been holding a long time. Welcome. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing fine. So I had a question about, um, so um, I wanted to know, like I've been in recovery for about five months and I'm still in my recovery process. And I'm, I've become, like, um, I believe I've become powerful. Like, I, I have control over myself and everything now. And I just feel good about myself, like the confidence that I have in myself. And I kind of feel like I can do anything, but I don't I don't know. Still dealing with struggling with that. But um, I want to know, how can I re- remain humble during, during like, me being successful later in life, being humble and acknowledging how far I came and um, how good I'm doing. Because sometimes I get I get blinded, like by my thoughts. My thoughts have me thinking that um, that I'm a I'm a somewhat like a bad person, but I don't do bad things. It's just some things that I I, I think about thoughts that I have. Well, you know that you, I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to tell you, excuse me, you are your thoughts. So you can be doing wonderful things, but thinking to yourself that, you know, you're not worthy or I'm no good, things of that nature. So we have this saying, there's two sayings that we have. And both of them, I think, will apply to you, at least the first part of what you're saying. You know, the act as if, that's what we, we call act as if. So you, you 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 act like you are what you want to be until you become what you want to be. It's similar to treat someone as you wish them to become and they'll become. Treat them as they are and they'll stay as they are. Okay. Now, you say that you know you're doing you're doing well in your recovery, and you wanna you wanna make sure that you stay humble. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so there's another saying that we have that we like to you know throw out there to people is about remembering where you came from. Okay. 
Now, I, I want to say one thing about, you say humble, I'm going to go to the, the word that connects to that, humility. I used to carry in my wallet a list that had 10 things that make, what the 10 things you must have in order to be a man. I lost a piece of paper because I carried it for years. It got, it got, the degradation over the years just disappeared. But I never forgot the last one, which is the hardest one for a man to get. And that's humility. So unless you have humility, you can get all the other nine preceding things. But if you don't get that number ten, humility, okay, being humble, not when you want to be, but when you need to be and when you should be. It's easy to be humble when you have to be. You know what I mean? I'll give you an example of when you have to be humble. You know, it's like when a cop pulls you over and, you know, says, okay, stay right there. You know, you got to be humble. Yeah. Okay. But it's different when you're in a situation where, you know, you have to control, you have to say, let me be humble. Let me show some humility. Not because you want to, because it's the right thing to do. When you can do that, then you know you've got it. But remember where you came from. That's the easiest way. When you're in your recovery process, you want to make sure that you you stay, you know, present and you're not, you know, looking down or looking too far up, but, you know, you're just staying present in the moment. Remember where you came from. Okay, okay. And, and continue to feel good about what you're doing. Yeah. Always feel good about what I'm doing. It's just like, um, yeah, I got to just remember where I came from because doing, like, the successful part, is that's what, that's what really that's what really gets me. Being successful? Uh, well, that's what got me, well, kind of, like, like, like in my no, past, no, that's, like my past that's, lifestyle. That's real. That's real. To, I mean, yeah, it led to different behaviors. Right. Uh, me being successful, I didn't really know as much as I learned now. Like mm-hmm. I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of things. Um, and I know, like, like before I came into my recovery treatment, um, I was still kind of successful, and I still like um, somewhat. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm trying to like keep my businesses running and stuff, and I should be doing better at it later down the line. And I just don't want to, um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to fall back into that lifestyle because of something I have. Like it's hard for me to explain it. That's that's all right. Remember where you came from, and you won't fall back. You'll continue to go forward. Just remember where I came from. Remember where you came from. And if you start to feel bad about what you're thinking, you share that with someone. You talk about it. Don't keep it to yourself. You talk about it. Just put it out there. Purge it from yourself. Don't keep it to yourself. Purge it from yourself. And when it's out there to the universe, it's gone. It doesn't belong to you anymore. Oh, that's right. All right, sir? Let it out. <laughs> Let it out. Okay. Okay, Trayvon? All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Right. Bye-bye. Let's go to David from San Francisco. David, welcome. Hello. How are you doing tonight? 
Good. Good. Um, my question is, is that I'm in the recovery program. I have grown children that have children of their own already. And what's the best wow. way I can help them to recover because they're in the same disease that I was in? So you have grown children who have children of their own, and who's in the disease? The, the, your, your children or the, or the grandchildren? Um, my children are. They're, my grandchildren are very young right now, and I'm currently oh, okay. in a program myself right now. Okay. So your your children are are struggling with addiction. Yes. Okay. And your your question is, what's the best way you can help them to kind of get into recovery? Yeah. Other than through words. Words of encouragement mm-hmm. by being the best role model you can be. Yeah, because, I mean, there's been a lot of, um, how do I say, I don't want us to call it bad blood between us because we all still love each other and they come visit me in my program. and um, But they're to the point with me in life to where, you know, like you said, my words are kind of like hot air per se. You know what I mean? It's time for me to, I guess, show them something. That's right. Oh, okay. Your your actions will say everything that needs to be said. Now, I'll just put a little caveat on that, just for this your circumstance. So it's uh-huh. a little bit different if you were, you know, you're you're going through your recovery, trying to get your life back in order, and they're not, they they don't have problems with addiction, and so the only issue has been you and the lifestyle you've led. But if they're also struggling with addiction. It just adds something else to the mix. So even though you're straightening your life out, you're going through your recovery process, they're in their addiction right now. And so the only thing you can do is role model that, you know, there is a way out from this. Because, okay, yeah, you can't say anything to them because their response is going to be, well, well, look what you did. Just because you're now getting your act together, now you want to say something to us. So we don't want to get into that back and forth. It's all about let me just show let me just show them what can happen. Okay, because that was what I was worried about, and kind of what I get most of the time. You know, it's like, well, yeah. it's exactly what you just said. You know what I mean? About look at you, you just all of a sudden, right? You're gonna get yeah. your life together, and now you can sit here and try to preach to us. And like I say, I'm still very new into my program, and it took me right. to lose everything to get into this program. And they're still. Kind of, I mean, I guess you could say functional, you know what I mean? They're raising their kids, doing work, going to work, but they've got a lot of misery with it, too. And they think the misery is normal because, I guess, the way I brought them up. Right. And I just don't know how to break out of that mold, you know, that I've set for them. This is uh, this is part of uh, what I like to call uh, paying the piper. Uh-huh. So you're getting yourself together, but... Part of your paying the piper is, you know, having a front row seat to watching your children struggle through a similar thing. And it's painful. It, it is painful. Mm-hmm. But you can't, you, you, you can't be deterred from what you have to do for yourself because there's nothing you can do for them if you're not correct yourself. Okay. And even when even even when you get to that stage of recovery where you've you know you've shown you've demonstrated that you know what I'm serious about what I'm doing here and how I'm living here, okay, that's still not going to mean anything to them. What's going to mean something to them, even while they're in their addiction, is 
And by the way, they may not say this to you, so do not expect it. But they can look and see, oh, look at what daddy's doing. Okay. You don't have to say a word. There's nothing for you to say. You can't say anything. You can only do something. Okay. And and go ahead. Okay, and I thank you for that answer. And on on the second like part of this question, it's still the same thing. With my um, older two children, there was a lot of issues that, like, I came home intoxicated and was foul to their mother in front of them. There was some abuse going on. And when do I begin to make amends for that to my older two, especially since my oldest is, is a girl, she's my daughter, and her and I, she, she still loves me as her father, but not really as her dad, you know what I mean? And I want to be her daddy because that's What's my her little age? girl still. What's her age? Um, Her age is 28. Okay. All right, David. I'm going to tell you something, so you buckle your seatbelt for this one. Okay. I tell parents all the time who have suffered through addiction and have grown children who has gone through that process with them, and whether those children are in addiction or not in addiction, there's going to come a time, sooner or later, where you're going to have to allow her to let it loose on you. And you're going to have to let it happen, and you're going to have to take it. Okay. And just accept the whole thing, right? I don't know. My advice is that that should happen in a formal therapy setting. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So there's an objective, independent third party present to facilitate that. But that what she needs to unload Mm-hmm. And and hopefully this happens when she's in recovery, of course. But she needs yeah. to unload all of her primal feelings of what she feels about her father not being there for her because he was okay. in his addiction. Okay. And only then, and when that happens, can that what you are wishing for and hoping for can start to actually take place. Because right now it's just going to be the surface you know, surface stuff, everything's, you know, okay a little bit, but there's that deep-seated stuff from, you know, way back when, and mm-hmm. she's got to she's got to unload it on you, and you just got to okay. take it. Okay, and just and accept, accept it, it all, right? And you got not only accept, but acknowledge. Okay. Accept and acknowledge and understand where, you know, where it's coming from. Understand the feelings, under, acknowledge the feelings, because it's primal and it's real. Okay. So, is there a point in my recovery that I should attempt this? Um, oh no, no, oh, no, 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 no. You, you don't, you don't push the uh, the wheel on this one. Okay. You don't push the wheel on this one. Like I said, there, you can. I say you don't push the wheel, but maybe you can nudge it a little bit. But you got to be very careful. Okay. okay, and again, my advice would be to try and have this to happen in, 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 a, in a formal setting with an independent, objective third party, a therapist, a counselor, etc. Okay, mm-hmm. um, to help facilitate this along, um, so that it can be a successful process, but not end up in a, a, a you know an explosion process. You know what I mean? Yes. Okay, and it may take a few times. Okay. Okay. And you may not get the opportunity until the very end, you know, to 
speak to your feelings. You know what I mean? So that's the position you're in. It's a hard position. It's a painful position. It's a difficult position, but that's that's the reality. Okay. But you can do it. Yeah, I mean, I've developed a lot of patience over this past, I'd say, several months right now. Um, prior to program, like I, I say, said, I, I lost everything. You can do it. Okay. David, I say you can do it. You know why I say you can do it? Well, why is that? If you want the relationship, you'll do whatever it is you have to do. Yes, I will. Yep, I, I do feel that way. So you'll make it happen. It will happen. Great. Okay, sir? Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When clients, um, adult clients, obviously, and, and they have children, you know, and their their children are now teenagers, and, you know, during the age, you know, from when they're three years old all the way through, you know, their high school years, their parents were, you know, in, in their addiction. Right. And now the parents get their act together, and, you know, the child is now 20, the child, but, you know, they're, they're now 20, 21, 23, you know, et cetera, and, um the parent wants to now try and get, you know, not, rightfully so, that's the right thing to do and try and get that relationship back. But that child is in a different space. Yeah. And you got to recognize that and allow that process to happen. It can't be, oh, well, I'm here, so you got to, you know, you know, you got to come, where, you got to get to where I'm at. No, 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 no. They're still stuck back at age five. Right, exactly. And they got to process all that stuff. And it's it's hard, and you know you gotta the the parent has to be willing to allow that process to happen. allow yeah. it to happen. And there's been many many times I've, I've told clients, you know, when we have our family association days, and you know, and the, and the families are each you know they're all sitting in their little the little groups and meeting with each other, and, and I said, you know, you I don't know when it's gonna happen. I can't predict the date. You know, you see the you know, you see the children coming every Sunday, you know, I said, but at a certain point that child is gonna need to and will at some point let you have it and you gotta sit there quietly and absorb it. Exactly. You gotta sit there and absorb it. And it's tough, right? Tough, but a part of the process. Part of the you process. Can't, you can't fight it. Yep. You gotta let it happen. I also wanted to touch briefly on the caller prior, uh, Travion. It's a big thing, remembering where you came from, because, uh, and I noticed you kind of tapped into it when he was talking about success, uh, and how it can be really easy once you go through this process and you taste a little bit of success and you're doing good to, hey, you know what, forget all about, you know, where I've been and what I've done, look at my life now, and I can probably handle something like this, uh, and then you're right back to square one, because you weren't rooted or grounded in the idea that, you know what, it took a lot to get here, and let me not forget that because it can easily be lost if I do. Yep. So I thought that that was big too. Yep. Go back to the phones. Who do we got? We got Adam. Adam from San Mateo. Adam, yeah, you there? yeah, okay. I am here. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, um, I've been into my program here. Uh, first time I've been in program for about four and a half months. And uh, first time I've been sober for uh, for about 16 years. Um, re- recently this week, I was I was having a hard time dealing with um, feelings that I have towards current issues I'm dealing with outside of treatment. Um, I find myself becoming much more sensitive 
uh, and um, I'm still applying some sort of numbing techniques. I think I, I developed when I was a child, uh, going through my father's addiction. Um, but I used to use alcohol that created some sort of fog for me um, to deal with things before I got in treatment. So my question is, <clears throat> is, it, is it healthy moving forward to kind of minimize certain events that are going on outside? Or if not, you know, like how how can I accept the feelings I have without turning to alcohol to manage the pain that I might feel? A big, fat, emphatic no. no. You should not minimize the feelings that you have. You are, if you are in a treatment setting, there is no better place than to let them come, experience them, feel them, talk about them, resolve them, accept them. There's no better place than to allow that to occur. Because you can't run from them, you can't hide from them, no matter how hard you try. You can drink as much as you want, unless you drink yourself to death. But until right. that happens, you're going to wake up, and at some point you're going to feel again. And so you just are going to be in that, I like to call it the washing machine cycle, of, you know, drinking, sobering up, feeling, oh, drinking again, sobering up, feeling. You know, you can't run from right. it. It's hard as right. people try to do. So, no, I want you to experience it. Right, and that and that's what and makes so you, it so you, tough and challenging because I have no reference point because it's been so long where I was in addiction that the feelings have, again the feelings I'm, I feel like I'm very sensitive to them because uh, I, I I really don't know how to how to deal with them. You know? Well, what happens what happens, Adam, is especially when you are have been in addiction for an extended period of time, and then you go into recovery those feelings finally get an opportunity to come up to the surface right? because you've been medicating them so long. Right. Now they get to come up raw and in, in, in their rawest form and primal, is that a word? Raw, rawest <laughs> form and most primal form. Right. And it might be overwhelming to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's why we come with the most simplest of, of advice. When you when you when that happens and 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 like you said that you're being very sensitive right now and I know exactly what you're talking about, but this is when you lean on your peers, you lean on others, you share with others what you're going through, what you're experiencing. You try and verbalize it, articulate it, what sure. you're experiencing. And we're going to do a show on. On feelings, I'm not going to give it away to, to you, but yet, but I will tell you that there is no big secret. We advise people to listen. You got to talk about it. You got to talk about it. Well, what is that going to do? Right. That sounds too easy. There's got to be something right. more complex and complicated to exactly. to help me through this. But it isn't. Right. It isn't. And then the person goes, and they, they do talk about it, they do share, and they feel a little bit better. I'm not saying they feel tremendously better, but they feel a little bit better. Why? Because they've offloaded some of it onto another. Right. Which is a new thing. I mean, I have I do have the opportunity in treatment to do that, um, but that, that itself is a new experience as well. That's a challenge, yes. 
But sure. we got to conquer that. Right. Little by little, little by little. Now, not over, we're not going to do it overnight, but little by little. Right. Right. Well, yeah, no, I I I get it, and um, you know, I I uh, I, I appreciate the show. Um, okay. I, uh, I get great help. So thank you again, um, and I'll be All listening. Right. Thank Take you, care. Adam. All right, bye bye. That was real. What he was talking about right there. Well. Absolutely, you could feel that. You know, being in addiction 16 years, and all of a sudden now I'm go, I'm entering this recovery thing, and now all these feelings are coming up. Right. All these feelings are coming back. I don't I I don't even can't even identify yeah, them. Yeah, don't even know where they're coming from, why they're coming up, or or or, or what what to call them. Sure. That's why we're going to do that show on feelings. Right. Because it's probably it's been so long since you've felt, <laughs> actually. And it's important for people to know, be able to verbalize. What they're feeling. What what are the names? You know, put a name to what it, what it is I'm feeling. Exactly. You know what I mean. All right, let's go to. Is that Renee? In yes, Half Moon Bay. Renee. Yes. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Hi. hi. I'm good. I was just, you know, this has always been uh, something I've wondered about. How come stimulants have the opposite effect with someone that's ADHD? You know, that's a good question. Because they, you know, someone who is ADHD, they the the medication is mostly stimulant based. So, when you're ADHD, you're quote I have my hands up in quotation, you're basically, you know, hyperactive, right? Right. Right, attention deficit. Um and they're trying to just thinking logically, okay? We say, okay, well, she's got attention deficit, she's kind of hyperactive, so we want to kind of, you know, kind of soothe that over, calm that down a little bit. But they prescribe you a stimulant, which you think is going to amp it up more. Right, but it does the opposite. It's kind of crazy. I've always wondered that. So the answer to that is I have no idea. (laughs) I know. Well, thank you. I but know that's great, it's always a, that's a great that's a great question. That's a great pharmacological question on how the those drugs have that effect when you would think logically they would have the opposite effect. I know. You gave me some crazy. Renee. You've given me some homework. Okay. Well, I will call back for the answer. Good stuff. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Why do you think that is, Mr. Producer? You know, uh, to be completely honest, I missed that screening the last call, but it sounds like it was good. We're, we're talking about prescription drugs here. She was asking about, you know, Medicaid, most of the medication they prescribe for people with attention deficit, hyperactive yeah. disorder is stimulant-based. Right. And you would think logically that you know, you're trying to soothe a person, calm, calm down their hyperactivity. Right. So it doesn't make sense that the medication is a stimulant versus maybe something that's sedative-based. I don't know. Um, and so her question was, why is that? Right. And why does it? Why does the stimulant-based medication is it used, and why does it work for something suffering with ADHD? I said, I don't know, but that's a great question. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, and I would have to do some exact homework on it as well. But I do believe um, it has to do with obviously your brain's neurochemistry, and kind of for people who are wired in a way where they're they struggle with ADD or ADHD. Um, their brain chemistry almost works in reverse. And so it's kind of like the two negatives make a positive type deal where you would need to give somebody where she's right, usually the um, 
attention deficit disorder medications or hyperactivity disorder medications are stimulant-based, uh, where if somebody who did not have ADD or ADHD took one of those stimulant medications, they would experience the stimulant right. form of the medication. But for someone whose uh, you know, brain neurochemistry is kind of working in reverse, uh, it has like an adverse effect, an opposite effect, kind of like um, you know magnets and the way they're charged, and you know with the whole negative, negative being a positive type thing. Well, I only got one thing to say about that. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, it is fascinating. All right, let's go to the phones. We got uh, Mr. Kehoe. Looks like Horn hey. San Jose. Horrible notes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I, I can make a quick comment about that last thing with the ADD. Sure. Um, it, the guy kind of had it right in a way, I mean, without going into all the pharmacology and the brain studies and stuff. Um, on children and young adults is where you're going to really see the stimulant uh, effect um, and have that kind of reverse effect on focusing up attention. Mm-hmm. Um, they have other medications. Uh, I'm an adult ADD. I started out ADHD, and now I'm an adult ADD. I don't take any medication, but uh, back when I was, you know, seeking help for it or to see what my options were, there were medications. They, they were not stimulant-based, actually, you know, what I was right. offered. So, um, I, but the the word in the field is that it, the, the younger people respond to it. That right. for some reason, and I, I couldn't tell you exactly, but uh, but it works on them. But um, wh- why I was calling was, and by the way, you, this is a great show, and you, you really sound like you're getting a lot of people uh, getting the word out there. Thank you. City, so, yeah, good for you. Um, but on the relationship thing, uh, that guy Adam was talking about something that really hit a chord with me, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm kind of I guess I could put myself out as an example of how exactly to go into long-term treatment or just residential treatment and, you know, screw it up, you know, for myself and wait for my time because of, uh, I, you know, right now I'm thinking about the issue of ego and mm-hmm. not wanting people to see my vulnerabilities or not wanting to look like a fool or, you know, that kind of thing. And just like, right. um, I, I think, you know, like I, I went to Walden house, uh, for my treatment and, uh, after six months, they kindly asked me to leave because um, <laughs> if I was so together, why was I there? You know, if I need help, come on back again, you know, and a few more years on the, in the gutter, you know, got me to a point where I was uh, willing, you know, to call them back and uh, risk, you know, that mortification of them rejecting me. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, they couldn't wait to get me back in to help me. You know, it was, uh, it was awesome. And, uh, you know, I learned that, you know, that's the the best place, you're never going to get another place in your life, especially once you get out of treatment, where you can, you know, strip yourself naked to those feelings, to that pain, you know, and, and rely and learn how to trust people and rely on them and, you know, practice like listening to them and really being there for somebody else and, you know, putting yourself out there in your pain. It's it's, it's like a like a secret, you know, organization, you know, where like everybody's, you know, experimenting with with their feelings and their histories, and and because uh, you know once you get back out there, coworkers you're not going to sob on their arms when you had a bad day at the relationship right. at home, you know, right? Uh, in, in, to, for the most part, you know. So um, and that took years, uh, you know, just years. 
But um, I got through it, and I'm you know, 32 years sober, and uh, you know, still still whipping it up. You know, um, the other part for me in on relationships. Wait, is, wait. Well, let me just one, one. How many years sober do you have? I the 32, honey. I think it's. Thirty-two years. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, nineteen eighty-one. We had to we had to recognize that. Recognize July fourth. Yeah, that's right. Thirty-two and July fourth. Yeah. So, um, but the thing is, you know, I was always a hound dog when I was young. My wife knows that, so you know, it's not a secret between us. You know, I was just a very old hound dog, and uh, doing my thing, and um, never had any lasting happiness, you know, in a relationship. Because I never really had a real relationship, and you know, come to find that out. But after I did all the good stuff, going to treatment, going to you know, twelve step religiously for years, I never found you know that relationship that I, I would you know want it so bad, or I see other people having it, and then I would you know want that for myself. But then I would learn that well, it happens when you're not looking for it. You know, you focus on yourself, and you know, blah blah blah, and go to you life, and I would, like, work so hard to do that, but, you know, half the time I'd still be paying attention to it, you know what I mean? I, it takes mm-hmm. a long time to really just let go, and uh, and I'm talking 20 years it took me to find my my wife and my love of my life, and uh, you know what? I was up to the challenge, you know, because I learned a lot in the meantime, and uh, and I have the tools today to uh, through that and all the other stuff, you know, the, the therapy and the, you know, practice, uh, practicing the, the principles and, and all that, that um, because relationships, man, what do they say? You better watch out what you ask for. You know what I mean? Because be, be careful it is what not you ask for. a honeymoon. There's a honeymoon period, and then there's love, and then hopefully you can work together. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're having it. Uh, I'm 10 years now, and the only relationship I ever had passed, uh, you know, a couple of years. And, um, you know, it was worth the wait. But I wouldn't say that, stuff. you know. Yeah, a couple of years before that, I wouldn't have said that because I would have thought, man, where's mine? You know, you know, right. kind of like, you know, I was 56 years old when I met her. <laughs> I told you how old I am now. <laughs> and, uh, well, but, you know, I'm just so glad that I, you know, I got on this path because it would have never, ever happened for me. And, uh, well, and it Peter, for me. Peter, yo, um, thank you very much for sharing that. We want to thank you very much for calling our show. And uh well, thank you. And uh we'll talk about why it took you so long to call. First time call, a long time. Yeah, listener. okay. I owe you hey listen, I, I got pneumonia right now, Orville. Everybody <laughs> out there is picking on me, but I have pneumonia <laughs> just a minute. <laughs> but no, thank you very much, Peter. We appreciate you calling right. and keep listening. Love you, Orville. All right, bye. All right. Bye bye. That's Peter Kehoe, everybody. Long-time friend of uh, OCG. Okay, let's go real quick to uh, Catherine. Thanks for holding on, Catherine. How you doing? I'm good. Happy New Year. Happy Um, New Year to you, too. Thank you. For um, David, I want to make a statement on that, if I can. Mm -hmm. I was working, and my daughter called me. She's 21 years old, and she asked me, was I going to be home? So I was like, yeah, why? This is emotional for me. So she says, because I'm going to be in a wedding. So I said, okay. And I realized sitting at that desk, I missed her whole childhood. I cried all the way home. But when I got here, 
she was walking up the aisle with her dress on, and she looked just so pretty. So she was 21 years old. Our addiction also reduced our children and stopped their growth. She came in, she got undressed, and I said to her, I said, I'm so sorry. She said, why? I said, because I missed your whole childhood. Children are so forgiving. She said, it's okay. You know, So, but like you said, you got to be prepared for that. You got to be mm-hmm. honest with yourself. I wasn't there. Another scenario, I'm in training. My daughter calls me and she says, I got to talk to you. So I'm like, okay, who do you want to talk to? Do you want to talk to your mother or you want to talk to the, the addict? She said, I need to talk to my mother. She says to me, I just left the doctor. She said, and I got lupus. And I want to know if you're going to be there for mine like I was for yours. You know, when your kids tell you stuff, you got to be ready, like you said. Because if Dave is not ready, he will relapse. Uh It's some heavy stuff we did to our children. And we got to be ready to hear when they get ready to speak. But also, we got to prepare ourselves to be ready. You got to know thyself. Am I ready to hear what she got to say to me? On top of her telling me she got lupus, but also letting me know I spent my whole childhood taking care of your child. So, yeah, it hurts. But I was prepared for it, so that's why... I'm so grateful that I did go through daytime. I did get that training, and I was prepared. You can't go in there if you're not prepared. Yep. So I just hope when the time comes for Dave to do this, he's prepared because it's going to hurt. It really is. Um, Me and my kids are great today, I thank God. You know, one is 35, 36, 42, 37. We're the best of friends now. It was also a point where she, the youngest one that went through the addiction with me, stood over me in the kitchen after five years and said, you did it. I'm like, did what? You didn't relapse. It takes time to rebuild these relationships. I'm good. That's all I got to say on that subject. And there's nothing to add to that. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's deep. Absolutely. Absolutely, but great advice. Uh, You know, that's kind of what's beautiful about the world of recovery. You can always look to someone who was once in your shoes who's now done it and, you know, take a look at how it was done. Heed their advice, others who have walked that road before you. Well, her advice to David was... uh, I mean, as we stated, that it's going to come. Yeah. And no one can predict, you know, when we see them in the backyard being, you know, we don't know what which Sunday it's going to be. Right. You know, when it's going to happen. But you better be ready for it, like she said. All right, let's go quickly to Jose, Daily City. Hi. Hey, Jose, how are uh, you? I'm all right. Um, I guess my question is really more, I'm in recovery now. I, I relapsed not too long ago. 
But one of the things that made me, I guess, relapse was my mental health. I know I've been having a lot of problems with it. I've been trying to get mm-hmm. treatment for it, but it's been kind of a really hard road for it. So my question really is, can I achieve recovery um, as far as not using my addiction, but if I don't take care of my mental health, would that cause me to, you know, down the line, not really be 100% and, um, you know, uh, well as far as my recovery? Uh, yes, that will impact your recovery if you don't address the mental health issues. Because sometimes so I feel like I could have a hold on it, but sometimes I feel like I do need like some professional help. But you know, I don't know. Okay, so we go with the part where you feel like you do need some help because okay. that's that's how mental health issues work. It goes back and forth, back and forth. You know, one side of the fence, the other. You know, you know that's you know the the brain doing its thing. So. Yes, it will impact your recovery if you don't simultaneously are only working on your substance abuse recovery aspect of your life, but making sure that the mental health part of your life is being addressed and nurtured and taken care of also. So whatever difficulty you're having trying to to, to, to get help in that area, we got to work harder. We got to figure it out. We got to figure out what's the barrier, what's what's stopping preventing it from happening and we got to fix it so that you so you can go and uh and get that help. Oh, okay. Hmm. It's important. Well, I thought maybe at one point if I was just, you know, strong-willed whatever, as long as I don't use any drugs whatsoever, no matter how bad my mental state is, that I was going to be able to still be able to be in full recovery, but at the same time, I was, you know, like, well, maybe it's beyond my control as far as my mental health and if I don't, that was my question, if I don't uh Seek that help, that professional help, uh, if that was going to make me, you know, down the line, keep on, I guess, fall for, you know, relapsing? I can only speak from from my experience in the field and say to you, yes, the chances are very high that that would occur if you don't address the mental health issues. Okay. And so rather than have that happen, let's be proactive Let's, you know, learn from others and be proactive and make sure we get that side addressed. Okay, well, that makes and, sense. And by the can I add another thing, Jose? Yes. That I just want to commend you for even talking about that. Because not everybody would come on, come on here and, 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 and say that, what you just said. Yeah. Because you know a lot of people want to keep you know if there's mental health issues and, and especially you you know you're you're aware that hey you know what there might be there might not be I don't know but you know I'm thinking there might be they won't even say that so the fact that you're even willing to even acknowledge it is commendable okay. thank you so yes let's get some help with that okay I definitely will I thank you for I really I think that really helped me out a lot to be honest with you. Because, you know, I was thinking maybe it's just me, but no, I mean, I definitely take value for what you said, and I'll take your advice on that for sure. Okay. Good stuff. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Jose. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's like the, uh, what do you call it, um, the silent, <laughs> it's like, 
the unspoken thing. Let's not talk about that. And so, I mean, it's, it was a wonderful thing for, for him to even mention that. People don't normally mention stuff like that. Um, you know, how how am I going to be looked at? You know, do people going to think I'm crazy? Well, no. You know, having mental health issue doesn't mean that you're crazy. Right. You know, mental health and emotional health a lot of times tie together. You know, we're not saying it's always psychiatric. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but to even acknowledge that, you know, hey, there might be something there and, and shouldn't and, and ask the question, should I be addressing this? Will it impact my recovery if I don't? Right. You know, is, uh, you know, to be commended. Yeah. The pink elephant in the room. Um, but yeah, no, he is right. And I guess kind of speaking to that, it's the stigma of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're in a place where you're getting recovery with a lot of other people and you are the one that has the, um, you know, the mental health issue or, <laughs> uh, you're the one that takes the medication in the, in the triple locked box and the people in Medline waiting for some ibuprofen behind you see that, uh, yeah, there's there might be some feeling attached mm-hmm. to that, even though on the surface it may just be kind of laughed off or a little joke here and there. But the person taking that medication could very easily feel that and, and might feel ashamed or embarrassed or whatever it is, whatever feeling might be associated with the fact that you're the one taking the, the crazy med, so to speak. Um when really, like you said, it doesn't make you crazy at all. There's a mental health issue that's being treated professionally that hopefully, if that can be managed while you're in treatment, will increase your likelihood of success. Absolutely. So, yeah, no, I thought it was a very good point from him. Indeed, I, I really did. And it took, like I believe, like you said, it took a lot of courage for him to uh, to even mention that. You know, it took a lot of courage for him to call in and even speak on that. Well, you know, in, in today's treatment, um, we no longer, you know, you rarely see any 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 treatment program. Most often, you, as you say, there's substance abuse and mental health. Um, yeah, co-occurring. So, and and the thing is, looking back in the 90s, we kind of knew, and this is what made us change our treatment, you know, thinking, so... That's good stuff. Well, I think we're about up against the clock, Mr. Producer. Yeah, we are. We are definitely up against it, as we typically are. Uh, But, you know, we do have a couple people in the queue, unfortunately, that we weren't able to get to today. Um, However, we do appreciate you calling in. We do appreciate you listening. Um, And please do call us back next week, next Tuesday. you know, to our show. And even if you have a question about this particular show, instead of whatever it is we're talking about next week, we would love to hear what you have to say. And we'd be more than happy to answer your questions. So we wish everybody a, you know, good rest of the week and a good weekend. The hosts want to close us out. Yeah. I'm just saying it might be our feelings show. So stay tuned. That's it. So again, we wish everybody a great rest of the week. Great weekend. Thank you all for uh, calling in people who have been supporting us uh, and listening. And we will talk to you all next week.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you gonna let a pussy down and make you cry? Don't you know?